Hello and welcome to Amazing Tales from off and on Connecticut's beaten path. My name is Mike Allen, and every other Tuesday I bring you a fresh, fascinating story about historically significant people, places, and events from Connecticut's long and fabled past. Stories that have relevance far beyond the state's borders. Today on Amazing Tales, the story of how the Nazi party pursued their training camp in the rural farming town of Southbury, Connecticut back in the 1930s. Our guest is John Dwyer, town historian for Southbury, who's going to share this amazing tale. There are three basic parts to this story. In the first part, we'll take a look at the political and societal conditions that existed both in Connecticut and throughout the country in the 1930s that would lead the Nazi party to even think it could locate a training camp in Southbury. In the second part, we'll look at what the Nazis had planned for the land that they had secured. In the final part, we're going to tell you about the steps that Southbury took with its 2,500 residents in an attempt to stop the camp from being located in their community. What you need to know first is that the Nazi party in the 1930s set up camps in various locations around the country. There was one on Long Island, said to be the largest, and as recently as within the last five years, lawsuits about restrictions on housing favoring German descendants in the Yaplank neighborhood, where the former campground was located, have just been settled. There was one in a small town about 15 miles west of Woodstock, New York, where the iconic rock festival was held back in 1969, and there were several others in the Northeast, including in Pennsylvania and New Jersey. Now, the Nazi party was targeting the rural, sleepy, and beautiful farming community of Southbury, near the Housatonic River, which marked the county line between New Haven County, where Southbury was, and Fairfield County, where neighboring Newtown was located. According to Southbury town historian John Dwyer, the atmosphere in the United States at the time was ripe for such activities. We think that we're a fractionated country today, Boy, you ought to see all the different groups and clubs and political agendas that were going on back in the 1930s. It's amazing if you look into it. So it was a polarized country with many ethnic groups that hadn't yet started to blend into the so-called melting pot of the United States. Well, this was not too long after you had the rise of the Ku Klux Klan, and they had their no blacks, no Catholics. So people still thought like that. It wasn't unfashionable. Uh, to be a bigot. John even said that some members of organized religion were fanning the flames. Catholic Church, the most popular radio speaker, uh, Coglin, Catholic priest, very popular, was, was a severe bigot, and people followed that. There had been a large influx of Germans into the United States following World War I, and like many European ethnic or national groups of the time, they tended to have their own clubs and meeting facilities where they could speak their native tongue, eat the food from their homeland, and keep tabs on cultural and political developments from back home. So it wasn't terribly unusual for the Germans to want to set up a facility for themselves. They wanted to have a club, a, a fraternity group, a brotherhood. They called it Friends of New Germany. But a lot of them, this is 1933, about the uh, time that the Nazi party was, was instituted. And, and they, these people who joined this group admired and respected um, Adolf Hitler and his policies. 
More to the point, after some research, officials in Southbury started to learn that there were decidedly darker intentions with this society that they wanted to form, known as the Bund. Let me say it another way. They were ardently anti-Semitic, and they made no bones about it. And that was probably one of the things that bind them together, is that they didn't like Jews, and they, they said it. And John says the word was getting out among federal authorities about these Nazi camps around the country. The Bund uh, was started by a guy whose name was Spank Noble. Uh, the American authorities didn't were worried about these people because of their Nazi sensibilities. Even this is long before, you know, uh, the Nazis took over Poland and Czechoslovakia. John says the feds finally rounded up the Bund founder and sent him packing. John tracked down an eye-opening story about what that gentleman did a decade later. They got him and they uh, deported him. People don't look into the rest of his story, but he joined, the, the, he worked for the German um, the army to uh, set up a sabotage squad, which during the war landed in Long Island. Um, he trained those people. He was an original Bundist. This was 10 years later. Um, they were all captured and several of them were hanged. It's a story that not too many people have heard. And John says when the original Bund leader was deported, he was quickly replaced in his role here in the United States. When he left, his position was taken over by a guy named Fritz Kuhn. Uh, they went around, they started buying up property all throughout the country and putting in camps, like weekend camps, youth camps where they could dress up in their uniforms and, and have their flags. Although they said they were American first, they were also German Nazis. John says they did their best to disguise their camps as pro-American entities. They always made sure they put the American flag in the right position next to their swastikas to say, no, 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 that's the flag code. We're, we love George Washington. <laughs> You know. At that time, Southbury was a town that had seen water-powered industry disappear. It was a rural agricultural town made up primarily of farmers. It boasted a beautiful landscape that drew well-off New York City residents who wanted to get away on the weekend. The Nazis started buying up land in Southbury, and John says they managed to pull off three separate purchases of parcels of land without arousing too much suspicion. John says it was only after the land deals were closed that townsfolk started to figure out something was up. They had their eye on a piece of property overlooking uh, what's now I-84 and uh, the Housatonic River, and they bought this large piece of property up top of a, of a bluff, and the only reason the local people found out about it, I mean, Southbury had, what, maybe two or 3,000 people at the time, I counted. But these German guys started showing up at the local hardware store and buying <laughs> tons of... Um, building supplies. John says that the parcel in question was particularly well positioned if the group had nefarious motives in mind. Being a military historian and looking at that site and how it was placed and positioned and thinking back to the, uh, um, the tactics of the Civil War era days, that would be a good spot. It would be a tough t spot to dislodge an enemy uh, up on top of one of the highest points within five miles commanding location of the river crossing and a train depot right there uh, within walking distance. The train station that used to exist adjacent to the property in the 1930s was replaced decades ago by another building after the railroad company ceased operations. 
Still, John says it had all the makings of a superb military site, and he says he has since found out that some of the persons associated with the camp project might have been looking at the site the same way he was. Some of the fellows who bought this property were ex-artillerymen from World War One. I. I actually went and looked up their records, and I say, no, maybe they were innocent, but I wouldn't want them there. John says concern about Nazi camps grew more urgent among both Southbury residents as well as in Washington, D.C., as reports from Hitler's Germany continued to pour in from overseas. They were being tailed, I'm pretty sure, by the FBI. And uh, some of the people in town said, we don't want these guys in here. We don't want them, you know, uh, um, goose-stepping in uh, Sig Heil. Uh, uh, as one of the women said, they said, we don't mind Germans, we just don't like that type of German. Some of the reports coming out about these camps involved children and the attempts to start a Nazi youth movement. There was also concerned about the, the Hitler youth kind of concept with the kids going there. And uh, they said, oh, no, we're just a German singing fraternity. Um, we're just hunting and fishing. The town population simply didn't want this facility, according to John, and they tried to put a stop to it. They didn't consider it American. Um, they tried uh, getting them shut down with several ordinances, but uh, none of it was effective. They would fail in court on First Amendment, free speech, and assembly. John says officials kept at it with several more attempts to eliminate the camp. The first selectman at the town at the time got enough people behind him, and I think he had some insight from FBI people. They put together a town meeting November 1937, and they said, uh, we want to have a resolution, some way that might work to get these people out of there. It passed, but they needed time to put it together. And to buy that time, John says that one weekend, the officials put together a constabulatory posse and went to the site where the Bund members were digging and building facilities. And they rounded all the people up and they said, you're coming with us. And they said, under what charge? And they said, it's Sunday. You're not allowed to work on Sunday. And he says, Was is that? We've never heard of anything like that. He says, oh yeah, we have the law from the old days of the New Haven Puritan colony. No work on the Sabbath. You're working. So they round them up and they took them down to the judge. And the judge had a gas station. <laughs> and guess what the judge was doing? He was working on his car. And he said, look, he's working, he's working. He said, oh, no, he says, he says I have a dispensation because <laughs> I'm the judge. In court, the charges were eventually dropped. But John says the delay gave the town enough time to put into place new zoning regulations on land use in Southbury. One of the things in the zoning regulation was eight or ten items, so it couldn't look like it was geared at just one particular belief system. Um, they also banned certain types of butchering in town and uh, banned any military operation not under uh, uh, guidance of the authorities. But after all, this was New England, some might call it Swamp Yankee territory, and the idea of zoning regulations, even to stop the Nazis, wasn't sitting too well with all of the residents. This is an old Republican town. They they, they didn't want to have uh, zoning any more than they wanted, you know, German Nazis in their town. And the concept to these old Yankee farmers was, what, you can tell me what, what I can do with my land? And so it it passed, but it wasn't, you know, 100%, and that was enough. Yes, that was enough, and it followed virtually everything else the town could throw at the project. They tried everything they could to get rid of them, and they f 
planted all kinds of stories about um, indecencies with the youth and all that. Who knows how much of that is true or isn't, but they did a lot to try and get rid of them. Zoning worked. A few years later, as World War II got underway, authorities made sure that the Bund activities were clamped down. He was arrested for embezzling. He was sent back to Germany, Fritz Kuhn. His successor tried escaping to Mexico, was caught. A bunch of them were rounded up along with some white Russians who were kind of shady characters. They were brought up to Hartford, Connecticut, of all places. And they were tried under the Foreign Espionage Act. They were charged and convicted of failing to register as a foreign agent, a charge that we've heard a lot about in recent years in the United States. And John says in the final analysis, once the war was over... No one heard anything more about these Nazi camps. After the war, there was no sense of having to bun. They basically dismantled. They burned all their records. They didn't want anybody finding out who they were and what they, what they were doing. Ironically, Southbury would go on to be host of the eclectic artist village known as Russian Village, now on the National Register of Historic Places, and a separate story in its own right, one which we'll be back to tell you about in a future episode. <laughs> That's it for this episode of Amazing Tales from Off and On Connecticut's Beaten Path. I want to thank my guest for this episode, John Dwyer, the town historian of the town of Southbury. In between episodes, please follow me on either Facebook at Amazing Tales CT or Instagram, also at Amazing Tales CT. I'd love hearing from you. If you liked what you heard today, spread the word, please, with your friends and family. See you next time here on Amazing Tales from off and on Connecticut's Beaten Path. I'm Mike Allen. Be safe and stay healthy. Music